more weeks on uh, episodes in the early church, the book of Acts, the exciting story of the early church. Also talking about the Making Room initiative to get more space on our campus. The first week we looked at the summary of the church on the very first day and the aftermath. And at the end of Acts 2, we've got nine characteristics that really define what church is all about. And then the next couple of chapters, Acts 3 and 4, we looked at the next week that involved the first real crisis in the church and how Peter and John go back to the church and how they, uh, there is such an emphatic response of prayer that that was their instinctive, immediate, urgent response. And in fact, throughout the book of Acts, we see the church, the early church, was so devoted to prayer and saw incredible things. This week, the passage right after that, at the end of chapter 4, we'll look at. So if you'll stand with me, uh, we will read at the end of Acts 4. Some of you know that, uh, remember Jeremiah Morris, who speaks with uh, speaks to our church several times a year. I, I love the way Jeremiah uh, so often prefaces, or he always prefaces his scripture reading with Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Everything else around us is going to fade away, but this alone is the sure foundation for life. It is God's word, and that's what we read this morning. I'll begin in verse 32, Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Then Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's holy word. Please be seated, church. In the early chapters of Acts, this church is particularly large. We've read earlier that there are at least 5,000 men, and if those included only the males, uh, then there would be 15,000, maybe more. But at least 5,000 were part of this church. It's a huge church. And to start off with this description by saying that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, that's pretty impressive. I mean, all those thousands of people, one heart and soul, they were united. And God loves it when His people are united because it expresses love. It expresses their oneness. It expresses their oneness in Jesus Christ. And so God loves that. In fact, in John's gospel, we have Jesus' final prayer on the night before he's crucified. And in that prayer in John 17, he prays for his immediate disciples. Then he prays for future church, future disciples down through the, through the centuries. That's you and me. He prays one thing for us, and he prays it repeatedly. 
emphatically. And that one thing is that this church would be one, that this church would be united, that they'd have one heart and soul. Now, the church down through the centuries has not done a great job about this unity. You know, the church in America, they probably wouldn't get an A. In fact, we, we might get a considerably lower score. You may have heard the story about the, the guy who was stranded on the South Pacific Island, and he was there several years, and, and finally a ship comes by, gets close enough to the island to see his fire, and moves in to rescue him. And when he's getting on the ship and saying, I'm the only one here, they, they look out and they see three huts there, and they say, well, why do you have three huts? And he replies, well, that first one over there, that's my home, and the second one there, that's my church, and that third one over there, that's where I used to go to church. And I uh, guess he had struggles with himself. Um, unity can be a challenge. Uh, Max Lucado, the pastor and writer in San Antonio, was speaking to 40,000 pastors in Atlanta. And he said to them, on the count of three, everybody shout out what church they pastor. And there was this cacophony of noise there and jumble of noises. And then he said after that, on the count of three, now tell a shout out who saved you. And at the count of three, the roar of Jesus through the stadium. We are united not by our church preferences and styles. And, you know, it's okay to have a variety of styles and preferences, just like some of you might like Whataburger and others like Chick-fil-A. You know, we can differ in styles. But we are united by Jesus Christ alone. And it's the most beautiful thing on the planet, how folks from all different backgrounds and flavors and such can be united so strongly in Jesus Christ. I love it that we've got probably 50 countries represented here at Wood's Edge and hundreds and hundreds of folks from all over the world. I love it that, that we have uh, various kinds of backgrounds and opinions and thoughts because we're united in Jesus and that glorifies God and it, and it honors the cross of Christ, which alone is our basis for unity. You know, Sometimes we get out of sorts because some other folks in the church perhaps see things differently. Well, my view is that we can see a lot of things differently, but we need to focus on the, the majors, major on the majors. I think there's about five majors in, in the spiritual life, and, and this is what I'd say they are. I'd say, first of all, the Bible is God's Word because that's the basis of everything else we believe, the Bible. Secondly, I'd say the triune God that one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thirdly, I'd, I'd say Jesus Christ himself is fully God and fully man, who Jesus is. Fourthly, I'd say the death and resurrection of Jesus, the death on the cross, resurrection of Jesus. And then fifthly, salvation by grace through faith. I'd say those are the basics. Those are the majors. And that really we can see matters of eschatology and uh, other, how you do exactly do church governance and other things uh, uh, differently, and, and we can still be united in Jesus. I encourage you, major on the majors. In Psalm 133, 1, God says how, how, bl how blessed it is when, uh, how, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's just something about the heart of God. Just like for us, Gail and me, we've got three adult kids, really six, including their spouses. Uh, we love it that they love each other and, and are united. And, and of course, the Father in heaven wants his kids to have that kind of expression. So they had this strong sense of one heart and unity. Classically, it has been said that in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty. In all things, 
charity or love. And that is a great way to look at the spiritual life. All righty, they have unity. They're one heart and soul. And now in the last part of verse 32, we have one concrete expression of that unity, and that is they're helping one another in the body. Verse 32 in the second part, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now that verse can uh, grab folks' attention a little bit, and you know, what does that mean? They lived in one big commune type thing, and did they uh, have no private property? Well, it becomes clear in the book of Acts, from Acts 2 on, including this passage and the next passage, that that's not exactly what the, the point is. They didn't have one big commune and have no private property. This is what it meant, is they had the sense and perspective, all that they had belonged to God. It was together, God's. They took their name, mine, off of their stuff and instead wrote God's. I've got a two-year-old grand, granddaughter. She's precious, and she's really into my, my this, my that, my that. Now, we're like two-year-olds if we think all this stuff is mine. <laughs> that is really immature. It is on loan to us from God. We, we brought nothing with us. We'll take nothing with us. It all belongs to God. We're stewards. We're managers of it. That's kind of like a UPS driver having all those boxes in the back and saying, mine. He's just a steward to pass them on to the right place. All that we have, we're stewards, and it's our privilege to pass them on as God leads us. And they had this spirit. They had this unity, and it was expressed in caring for the needy people in the body, and they would generously help out. Now, the previous verse that we saw last week, verse 41, says that they, all these folks in the church, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that means you're full of God and not self. It means you're surrendered to God, and this is what inevitably happens. Generosity flows out. Also, last week we saw prayer flows out, but also generosity flows out. When Jesus Christ captures your heart, you fall in love with Jesus, you cannot not be generous. Uh, it's just going to come out. Randy Alcorn, a writer, put it this way. He said, as thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. When God's grace touches you, you can't help but respond with generous giving. Or... Somebody else put it this way, if you fall in love with Jesus, you will become generous. If you are generous long enough, you will become like Jesus. And you will be happy. The happiest people on the planet are generous people. It just goes with generosity, the, the joy that God gives us. And the, the, the miserly, fearful people are just not going to experience that joy. Sometimes there's a debate uh, raging among Christians. This is one of the things we can disagree on, by the way. Sometimes there's a debate, man, and in the New Testament, do we give 10%? It seemed like they gave 10% in the Old Testament. Well, they did kind of as a basis. Really, it was some taxes and some more. But does that apply to the New Testament? You know, it's not definitive. It's not completely clear. But here is the standard for giving in the New Testament. It's not the tithe. It's the cross. And that means everything we give to the Lord, everything. So the standard is not the tithe. It's the cross, and I doubt it's going to be less than it was in the Old Testament. It is our privilege. And when God gets your heart, when you fall in love with Jesus, it's just, you're just going to want to give. It's just something that's going to naturally happen. All right, there's another characteristic noted in verse 43 and 33, and that's this. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, 
and great grace was upon them all. So, so great power. Now, now remember the theme verse of Acts, Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the power of God's going to be, uh, going to always go with the Spirit. Uh, you're being filled with the Spirit, not filled with self. And as I'm surrendered to the Spirit, there's going to be power in, this Christ, in the Christian life in all kinds of ways. And they had power. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, here in the church in Jerusalem, the very first church, the leaders were called apostles. After that, they were invariably called elders, or sometimes elders and pastors, elders and overseers. Apostles in the first generation were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That was one of the requirements. It was the 11 disciples. It was Paul. It was a few others, perhaps. But these were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Of course, they died out, and so there weren't apostles in that technical sense. I think they're apostles in a secondary uh, secondary general sense of those with a wider ministry than just one congregation. But no apostles like the eyewitnesses of the resurrection that the church was founded upon. And it says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The message of the apostles and of the early church was that Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. He rose and we saw him with our own eyes. And here was this defeated, discouraged, uh, disheartened band of followers after the, the, re- the death of Christ. But when they saw him alive, it completely transformed them for the rest of their days. And they were willing to die for the gospel because they could not get over the resurrection of Christ. That is the message of the church. Jesus not only died for us and died for our sins, he rose from the dead. He's alive. And we can have the hope of life because of that. So this was their testimony. This was their message, the resurrection of Jesus. To some extent, so that some even thought for a time, man, is that their God that keeps saying resurrection? But no, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So great grace was upon them all. They focused on Jesus. They had unity. They had generosity. And the hand of God, the favor of God was on that church. Now, what... what would be more valuable for any church to have than the grace of God. That's what I'd want more than anything, God's hand and favor. In fact, if you ever pray for me and you pray about preaching, the single thing I want is God's hand, God's favor. It's God's anointing. I don't care if it's eloquent or it's, you know, get the grammar right, things like that, but I want the hand of God, the favor of God. That's what we want as a church. And, and he's been so gracious to us. But, but more and more, we want to be surrendered to him Surrender to the Spirit of God so that God's grace and hand and favor is upon us more and more. Now, at this point, Paul goes back, or actually Luke uh, goes back to underscore that generosity that he had noted earlier. We're in verse 34, and there we read, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as he had need. Distributed to each as as any had need. So isn't that something? They had, you know, 10,000, 15,000 people perhaps in the church and all these folks. But of course some of them were out of work and didn't have uh, enough finances. And there were widows there. And and the folks realized that they're a body. (laughs) They're, they're a family. They're a church. And, and 
This is part of unity. This is part of loving one another. Now, let me remind you, the American ethic is individualism. That is a deep value in our hearts. That's not the biblical ethic. The biblical ethic is community. It's the body. And they have this deep sense, we're all one body, and this is all belongs to God. So if there's some folks over here who are going without, I need to help. And God had given some of them a lot of resources, just like he's given a lot of you a lot of resources, and, and that was uh, made available for kingdom purposes. And it was their privilege. They, they, it was, becomes very clear that they didn't have any obligation. It becomes clear in chapter 5. There was no coercion. Everybody didn't have to sell their lands. In fact, there is a negative example in the next chapter, which is clear. You didn't have to sell this, but they wanted to. So many of them chose to and wanted to. And uh, Paul, Paul, Luke is underscoring that generosity. So various folks with stored resources, property, houses, sold them. They brought the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet, and the leaders of the church distributed. Now, they would know others in their church that uh, had financial need, but they didn't just take it on themselves to, 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 to give the money. They, they realized that there were some God-appointed leaders, and part of their giving was to release control and give it to the God-ordained leaders of the church to distribute. Giving is not a matter of control. It is a matter of releasing control. It is a matter of surrender. I don't believe that means that all your giving has to be to the church, but I think your basic giving does. That's Gail's in my pattern for decades that, you know, our basic giving, really for us, it's that a full tithe off of our total income. And then we might, uh, from time to time, we give outside uh, beyond that. And there's no law there, but there is this principle throughout the Old and New Testaments that people gave where they worshiped as part of their worship, and it was an act of surrender rather than an act of control. So they were trusting that the elders there, the leaders there, had uh, the, the big picture about the needs, and they brought them to there, and they trusted God's appointed leaders to distribute it. And that expressed their oneness and their unity. Now, at this point, um, he gives a specific example of the generosity, and that's Barnabas. He's introducing Barnabas to us for the first time in the book of Acts, and he'll become prominent. So in verse 36, the last couple of verses, we read, Thus Joseph who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Luke is doing two things here, inspired by the Spirit. He's given us a concrete example of this kind of generosity with Barnabas, with Joseph. The next chapter that we won't get to, he'll give us a negative example of someone who pretended to be generous but really wasn't. But the second thing he's doing is he's introducing Barnabas, who becomes a key figure in the, in the book of Acts. Here in Acts 4, he's introduced in the context of, of his generosity. And, and more than that, he was an encourager. His name, Barnabas, was just a nickname, it was a title. It was like saying, like you and I saying, encourager. He's an encourager. Uh, uh, he was from Cyprus, that island south of Turkey today, west of Israel today. Still an island there, in fact, our son-in-law. Mike Grins, who works for Noble Energy in Israel, he at times works, works in Cyprus. That's where Barnabas was from. Barnabas, in Acts, Acts, in Acts 9, when Paul comes to faith, and Paul had been the leading persecutor of the faith, when he was saying that he was now a follower of Jesus, nobody believed him. They said, no way 
Is he a, a, a real believer? He's just trying to get on the inside and liquidate us one by one. But Barnabas took the time to go to Paul, sit down, hear his story, look him in the eyes, and he, he believed him. And he then took Paul to the leaders of the church, Peter, James, John, guys like that, and vouched for him. Oh, no, he's really a believer. God saved him. This is what happened. And they accept him in. And then in Acts 11, Paul is run out of Jerusalem uh, by the, the Jews who, uh, you know, have such hatred that he's now a believer. And he, and he flees to his hometown of Tarsus today in southern Turkey. Now, in Acts 11 and 13, Barnabas, there's a great work of God in the city of Antioch, which is over close to Tarsus, southeastern Turkey today. Barnabas is one of the teachers and leaders there, and he, he says, well, Paul is over in Tarsus. Paul is a gifted man. God's hand is on him. He travels 100 miles from Antioch west to, Tur to Tarsus, gets Paul and says, come back to Antioch. We need you there. He brings him back, and Paul becomes one of the leaders and preachers in the exciting church of Antioch. A and that is an encourager. As Barnabas believes in Paul, vouches for Paul, encourages Paul, empowers Paul, don't you know that people love to be around Barnabas? You know, they probably just love to be around him. Are there people like that in your life that you love to be around because they're not downers, they're not just always negative and cynical and unbelieving, but, but, but they're positive, they're upbeat, they, they believe in you, they empower you, got big hugs and big smiles. Don't you love to be around a Barnabas? Of course you do. We all do. Be a Barnabas to other people be an encourager. And of course, the main point here in the text, the passage, is that Barnabas, the encourager, led out in generosity. That was just natural to him. He brought it to the apostles, just like we saw earlier. You know, this morning, when we look at generosity, uh, I am not speaking to a people that are not generous. Wood's Edge is a generous congregation. That means that a lot of you are very, very generous. And we as a church together get 50% of our income outside the walls of the church. So we together can be generous because you're so generous. And that's because uh, so many of you, your hearts have been captured by the love and the grace of God, and it just naturally flows out. And I thank you so much for your generosity. Last week, we, we, last two weeks, as we've talked about making room, uh, if you've been here, you know the basics. I don't have to go through them, but I, I have underscored that making room for more people on our campus starts with making room in our hearts to love people the way God loves them. And it also means making room in our prayers to pray for people, including our top five, uh, the people that God has a heart for, that Christ died for. It also means making room in our pocketbooks because in concrete ways we express our faith in God and our love for people by doing this. Now, church, we're making room on our campus. As you know, not because we want more buildings or because we're enamored with buildings. All of these things are like the grass withers and the flowers fade. It's going to burn. It's not going to last. But during our time here in this community, God is bringing a lot of people who need to be reached with the love of Jesus Christ. And that matters to you and that matters to me because Jesus Christ matters to us. I care about every single lost person in this area who needs to hear the clear message of grace in Jesus Christ, that there is a God in heaven who loves them incredibly, and he, they, he sent his son Jesus to die for them. I care, and I, I trust that you care about every single one of those folks. And moreover, I care about every believer who moves in this neighborhood, 
who moves in this community, moves in this area, who needs a church home that focuses on Jesus, teaches the Word of God, and, and, and has a, a, a desire to please God and bring hope to the world together. I care about every one of those believers. We have made room on this campus for you. Together, now that you're here, together we make room for the other people that God's going to be bringing in the coming years and decades. And it is about, not about more buildings, it is about reaching the people that God wants us to reach, whether or not they're our children, grandchildren, or strangers that we don't know. If God has touched, the, touched your heart with the ministries of this church in any way, would you please stand with us? If you believe in our vision, our mission is in your church home, please stand with us. Don't give what Jeff wants you to give, because I don't know what God wants you to give. Uh, it's very clear in the next chapter that they only need to give what God wants them to give. And so I'm simply asking you, ask God. Pray about it. Wrestle it with God. God, God will make it clear to you, and the exercise of seeking Him will be a matter of faith-growing time for you. If you would reach out to that uh, seat back in front of you and pull out that purple or burgundy or whatever that is, uh, I guess I could say maroon, maroon card, um, about making room, and you have to open it up to the inside. On the right side, there's a little uh, outline for it. And you see we've got a couple of questions here. Lord, uh, what would you have me give out of my current resources, out of my current income? And then there's a question about not current or future income, but about past savings. Lord, what about stored resources? Is there anything you want me to give? That's savings, that's stock, that's property, like the guys in Acts 4. If God leads you to give out of either of those, then respond to Him. Just obey Him. That's all you, all you need to do. He'll, he'll take care of you, and he'll, um, His smile will be upon you. Um, just seek Him together. If you're married, seek Him with a spouse. Get alive, speaking with your spouse, and uh, next Sunday, if you would please bring uh, these little pledge cards. Uh, together, we'll give those and express that. Dozens have already started coming in, and, we, and I'm so grateful for them. I think it's pretty clear we need room. We need room for our children. We need room for our Hispanic ministry. We need more room, particularly the second service, for worship. And there are some other things that we need on the campus. And together, we can make more room for the people that God wants us to reach. This is not our, our burden. This is our opportunity. God gives us resources so we can give them to the kingdom, invest in the kingdom as the best use of our money possible to reach precious people for eternity. Church, stand with me, please. Pray with me. Lord God, we bless you because you're our God and you are good to us. Lord God, thank you for your hand being upon us. But Lord, we want to please you in every aspect, that everything that we do, including every aspect of this Making Room initiative. Lord, help us to be people of faith. I pray this be a faith-stretching, unity-growing thing here at our church. Lord, I pray that there be ample funds. Lord, I pray that nobody here would feel uh, any sense of pressure, but just leading by you, leading by you, knowing that you take care of us. Papa, we bless you. We bless you for being so good to us and loving us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.